The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I am very happy to join you today as I'm uh, lucky enough to do each Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern while Leslie uh, returns from her TV, uh, regular TV appearance on uh, Fox News Channel where she is a uh, regular contributor. You can find uh, all of her TV appearances on our website, which is lesliemarshallshow.com. Leslie uh, will be back uh, in the next two hours from 4 to 6 p.m. She'll be talking with Brad Bannon of Bannon Communications uh, a little bit in uh, the next hour. And then uh, in the third hour, as you probably heard, uh, we have a nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, President Obama has nominated uh, Merrick Garland, and Leslie will be joined by Ian Milheiser, who's a senior constitution, uh, excuse me, a senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress. He's also the editor of Think Progress Justice. That's from five to five thirty. But before then, we have a lot to unpack about what happened in last night's primaries. And to do that, I have uh, one of my very favorite people to talk to about the world of uh, politics uh, and our government, and that man is Nicholas Wapshot, who's the opinion editor of Newsweek uh, and an author, as many of you have heard him on here before. If you like uh, what Nicholas has to say and you want to um, learn some more about uh, his different views and uh, how he's written about different important things throughout history, uh, his newest book is titled The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and the Road to World War II. You can find it at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com and uh last of all you can follow him on twitter at n wapshot nicholas welcome back to the show great pleasure to be here mark goodness me what there is to talk about oh well <laughs> you know it, you'd, be, you'd be hard pressed to find a day where there was more news going on i was already you know last night staying up kind of watching all the election coverage uh kind of formulating you know the numbers taking all that in taking in the speeches you know learning about everything going forward and then you know just about when we're about to prep you know you have the supreme court nominee come down and everything about that so it's uh i it was i was laughing when uh andrew our assistant producer andrew tommy he had emailed nicholas asking him if he would be on uh he said i'd love to it's i forget your exact words but it was something like it's like the super bowl christmas and all this other other stuff uh, combined uh, in the political world. And, and you're really right. Um, so let's get right into it. Last night, uh, a very big night for uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, right now, I think they're still finalizing results in Missouri, but she does look like she's going to take that, which means she, I believe, would have uh, a five-state sweep uh, last night with Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Illinois, and then Missouri. So what do these victories uh, for the Secretary of State Clinton tell us? Well, a win's a win, even if two of the states she was only ahead by a nose. But uh, it, as you know, the primary game is mostly about momentum. Who's got momentum and who hasn't? And the fact is that to, to win five 
together on the same day against really strong opposition in those Midwestern states from Bernie shows that she really is on a roll, and it's going to be very difficult to stop her. I mean, if, there, if we really were in the middle of a successful Bernie insurgency by now, then she would have lost those two states at least, and he would have started reaching out elsewhere. But he's nowhere in the South at all. He's patchy even in, in the Midwest. He did very well in Michigan, of course, but it's not enough. So actually, uh, what should be happening now, and I'm not sure what level it is, it probably is already starting, there will be little feelers being put out in both camps to say, you know, what time should we wind this up, which is the best way to deal with this. And uh, Bernie's got to work out what he has extra to gain. He's made an enormous point. He's changed Hillary. He's pushed her to the left. Uh, he's been very successful in that. Uh, he, he, she's not going to go much further left than she has already gone. So even if she, he stays on a little bit longer, we're into diminishing returns now. It's a matter of, I think, that you could make a very good, strong, unified party uh, argument to say, why don't we all save our money? Why don't we also save our breath and save our energy? Because it's going to be a horrible long fight, whoever wins on the Republican side. And why don't we just patch this up? And Bernie can just, I guess, ask his price. You know, why, you know he's in a very strong position. Uh, in order to get out soon, he could say, well, I'd really, you know, I've always wanted to look after so-and-so. And, uh, and it could be a good promise. He ain't going to get on the top of the ticket. He's not going to be the vice presidential nominee. I doubt anyway. I profoundly doubt. He'd have to be doing much, much better than he is uh, if he was going to claim that enormous prize. But the, I think the fact of the matter is that really the game is over in the Democratic side, and it's just a matter of mopping up. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, how long uh, Bernie will be in denial. And uh, I would have thought that a number of, uh, of his close pals by now would be tapping on the shoulder and saying, you know, where's the graceful exit here, Bernie, and what's the price you want to put on uh, be, doing the decent thing? And I think he would. I mean, if you, you, know, you know from following him, he definitely seems like the honorable type and very realistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not... He's never seemed delusional to me. You know, he's he's got, you know, something he wants to do here. He wanted to create a political revolution. It wasn't as big as he's hoped so far. But I also think the way that he's affected this race in the direction of the Democratic Party uh, is very strong, as you you brought up. Now, to play devil's advocate on that, Nicholas, I think you make some strong points about, uh, you know, saving some of the money that is in the Democratic coffers for the general election, uh, making sure that, you know, the candidates aren't tearing each other down, which, you know, has been much tamer on the Democratic side that it has on the Republican. But nonetheless, you know, sometimes you score some swipes at your opponent. It, it can have a lasting effect. Um, but on the flip side of that, some have said it's actually good for the Democratic Party if Bernie stays in the race uh, for a little bit longer um, or, you know, not even a little bit longer. But even maybe people say, you know, close to the convention because it keeps Hillary on her toes, number one. And number two, it assures that the Democrats continue receiving media coverage since they'd still be involved in a contested primary, and they're already having trouble getting even half as much coverage as the Republican race has gotten. What do you think about that take? Well, uh, two things. First of all, I don't think that Hillary needs any more prepping, quite honestly. You know, she's been running for president for two decades minimum. Uh, and I think she's, you know, and she learns from her mistakes, too. I mean, she's learned from her Obama problems, and uh, she's learned how to love the president. And she's all, she will learn how to love Bernie, too. And she's it, one of the great things about the Democratic side is how well-mannered it's been. So there is life after death, which in the Republican side isn't the case. Uh, but the the other thing about the uh, media coverage, actually, if, you were, if, if Hillary's a brand, then actually uh, she's already a bit sort of shop-worn. You know, we know a little too much about it than we'd like to. And quite honestly, 
we don't need to know anything more about Hillary. If she took a six-month break, it would be perfectly good in terms of figures. In a way, uh, more Hillary just might irritate more people. It might be a good, uh, good time for her to, to step back and just let the Republicans bash it out. They're, as you know, they're hogging the media limelight anyway because it's such a circus and it's such enormous fun to watch, particularly if you're not a Republican. But uh, on the Democratic side, the, the debates are slightly tedious, quite honestly. They don't make any news because none of the positions change. Uh, they don't uh, throw insults at each other, uh, so the news isn't much interested in them. They're bound to be relegated. So uh, are they getting value for money? Well, I guess it's free, so it, it's worth something. But I don't think that they need any more of that, quite honestly. Uh, you and I could, uh, and, and goodness sake, when you become a pastiche on Saturday Night Live because of, you know, how you present yourself, then everybody's got the joke by now, and it ain't going to change much. So, you know... It, it, so think you think it, you essentially think the you think the benefits of Bernie stepping out for the Democrats outweigh you know him staying in essentially and Hillary would then pretty much just continue going around the country as the nominee and essentially already start campaigning for the general election. Um, now, yeah. okay, Hillary solidly beat Bernie among registered Democrats last night, but. Uh, Bernie really walloped her among registered independents, you know, him being an independent himself running for the Democratic nominee, I think maybe has something to do with it, but not that's definitely not the whole story. Um, and the Sanders campaign has used those numbers to argue that he's better. He's a better general election candidate. Now, you know, you can make your argument against that. But on that specific point, Nicholas, I could realistically see a huge share of registered Democrats voting for Bernie in the general if he was the nominee. But I'm not sure if you could see the same percentage of independents voting for Hillary in a general election. So is that well, a problem I, for her? If you break down the independents, of course, independents go two ways. They go Democrat and Republican. And the sort of independent who is taking part in the Republican race at the moment is either crazy and they're voting for Trump, or they're trying to vote for somebody like Kasich or the long-gone Rubio uh, in order to, because they're sort of in, genuinely politically in the center. All of those people apart from the ones who've gone to Trump, will we'll, uh, get on board uh, the Democratic uh, campaign, uh, whichever, whoever wins it, because uh, the Republican is going to be horrible. The other sort of the independents, what we know about them is they're actually quite prepared to vote for a Democratic Socialist. They really haven't got anywhere else to go. Uh, they are to the left of Mrs. Clinton, and so if she's the nearest, if she's playing center-left or even center-right, considering what the Republicans are going to be up to, they really have nowhere else to go. So they either don't vote or they vote for Hillary, but there's so much at stake this November that I think that anyone who is sort of uh, publicly minded enough to go out and vote for a primary will vote in the general election, in which case they haven't got too much choice, have they? They've either got a, a moderate person or they've got Trump or Cruz. Or Kasich? I don't believe it. So, Nicholas, what, before we go to break, what specifically is going right for Hillary? People were saying, you know, after Iowa and New Hampshire that, you know, she could be in trouble. Um, a lot of people talked about, well, that was really just the Democrat, demographics. We hadn't gotten to the states that had high uh, minority populations, which Hillary does really well with, like North Carolina, for instance. Um, what really turned it around for her? Was she never really needing to turn it around? In a way, yes, I think that it was a it was a false race from the beginning. And if you looked at the superdelegates too, uh, which we might get into, it's slightly complicated. But the, if you looked at them, you know, Hillary has already run the race effectively. She had a, she had less of a distance to run than Bernie. Uh, 
I think that she had already, and we're talking about the hard work put in by she and Bill Clinton over decades with minority groups, particularly with African Americans and with Hispanics. And as we saw when uh, the, the African uh, American caucus uh, lined up in, in uh, South Carolina, uh, they they thought that Bernie was a sort of Johnny-come-lately. He might have been on the right side of history all along, but the fact is he hadn't made himself conspicuous. And it's very, very difficult to break the bonds between the Clintons, particularly in the African-Americans. I mean, everybody joked about Bill Clinton being the first African-American president, but it's actually strangely culturally true. He has enormous empathy with them, and vice versa. They think, you know, I mean, he's, he's a great guy. He's an astonishing guy. And he, they understand what he's about. And the Hispanics, and to the women, Mrs. Clinton's, again, been working at that. Well, Mrs. Clinton's been working at it since the beginning of her political life uh, in order to improve women, a lot of women. And she's worked amazingly hard in places like Nevada in order to ensure that uh, when it comes to voting, that uh, she does pretty well with the, the Hispanics, too, in primaries, which she, she did this time. So I think that, in a way, it was a coalition that Bernie had to break. And uh, I think that there are cultural problems about, you know, an old white Jew from Vermont trying to penetrate into the South. Uh, he's, he's, he's not flexible enough. He didn't start early enough. You know, he should have started when he was 30, not when he was 65. And I think what, you, what you're pointing out is true, Nicholas. These are relationships that the Clintons and Hillary herself has, has cultivated over years coming to fruition uh, in a primary. Unfortunately, we have to take a quick break, but we've got more Nicholas Wabshot. He's with us the whole hour. If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can do so at 888-6LESLIE. That's it's 888-653-7543. We will uh, be getting into the circus that is the Republican Party uh, after this break. And we're also going to talk a little, bit about, uh, some, a little bit about something Nicholas and I touched on a little bit, which is the media coverage uh, that the Republican Party and specifically Donald Trump is receiving. Um, how out of whack is it with the coverage that everyone else is receiving? We'll get to that as well. Again, this is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. I will be uh, with you for the remainder of the hour, and uh, I am joined by good friend of the Leslie Marshall Show, Nicholas Wapshot, who's the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. Check out his book, which is called The Sphinx, Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and the Road to World War II. You can find it at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com. As promised, we're going to shift to the Republican side for now. Uh, With John Kasich's win in Ohio last night, Donald Trump needs to win roughly just under 60% of the remaining delegates to get to the 1,237 that are required to capture the Republican Party's nomination. Today, this is what Trump had to say if what he, what he thinks would happen if the GOP blocked him at their convention in July. Yes, I think we'll win before getting to the convention, but I can tell you if we didn't and if we're 20 votes short or if we're, if we're you know, 100 short and we're at 1,100 and somebody else is at 500 or 400 because we're way ahead of everybody, 
I don't think you can say that we don't get it automatically. I think it would be, I think you'd have riots. I think you'd have riots. You know, we have, we're, I'm representing a tremendous, many, many millions of people. In many cases, first-time voters. These are people that haven't voted because they never believed in the system. They didn't like candidates, et cetera, et cetera, that are 40 and 50 and 60 years old. And they've never voted you, before. Many, many of those people, many Democrats, many independents coming in. That's what the big story is, really, Chris. I mean, the really big story is how many people are voting in these primaries. The, the numbers are astronomical. Mm -hmm. Now, if you disenfranchise those people and you say, well, I'm sorry, but you're 100 votes short, even though the next one is 500 votes short, I think you would have problems like you've never seen before. Well, I think... I think it would. I think bad things would happen. I really do. I believe that. I wouldn't lead it, but I think bad things would happen. Nicholas, first of all, do you think Trump will get to the necessary twelve hundred thirty-seven delegates? And if not, give us your thoughts on what a contested GOP convention would look like and those comments uh, from Trump. We've got about two minutes till our hard break, so uh, if you have more to say and we don't get to that, we'll uh, let you finish on the other side. But go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just starting off with the fact that now we have a man who wants to be the president who's threatening street violence. Thank you. He doesn't get his own way. I mean, it's just astonishing. The world that we've now moved into, thanks to Mr. Trump's entry into the race, is beyond belief. We're in some form of science fiction. Uh, but can he get to the right number? Now, this may or may not be the right question to ask in a way. I know it's the, the, the great thing. Can he get past that line? But the fact is... This is now a profoundly divided party. Whatever happens, it's going to be 50-50, roughly, even if he squeaks and gets 55%. That really is not enough to win the general election, because the other side, whichever side, I mean, either Trump wins, uh, in which case the other lot are going to sulk, or they put up some unknown character, Mitt Romney again, who knows, in order to uh, trump Trump, in which case then you've got Trump and his, you know, violent supporters going to run you ragged until Election Day. So can he get to the right number? It's a sort of marginal point by now, I think. Uh, the, what, what the Republicans have shown is that there are two, if not three, parties, and that the moderates and the conservatives find themselves oddly allied against this extraordinary populist nationalist. Uh, I won't go into the other isms that he also suggests, which are even, even worse. But, I mean, we're dealing with now something which, whatever happens, that convention is going to be horrible, because... Half the people won't turn up. You, if, if Trump gets past that magic number, you won't have any previous president or presidential candidate who will actually attend the rally. I mean, you really think so? You don't, you don't think you'll see, for instance, that's, that's a great point, Nicholas. Let's go to break on that if anyone uh, wants to join in. I think it'll be interesting to see if you have, you know, former President uh, George H.W. or George W. Bush. I think Nicholas is probably right. I don't think they'll, they'll be at the convention. You definitely won't see Mitt Romney, the former candidate, or probably John McCain, former candidate. He's in Insulted both of them, Trump has. Give us a call, 8886 Leslie. This is Mark Romaldi with Nicholas Wapshot. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi, Leslie's executive producer. I am pleased to be joined by a good friend of the show, Nicholas Wapshot, who's the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. Again, his newest book is titled The Sphinx, 
Franklin Roosevelt, The Isolationists, and The Road to World War II. Check it out at www.norton.com forward slash books and amazon.com. You could follow him at nwapshot. Uh, as we were talking about before the break, what a uh, contested or some people are calling open uh, convention last night. I was uh, laughing because I was watching CNN uh, coverage last night, and Jake Tapper said he received an email uh, from someone at the Kasich campaign that said, we don't call it a contested convention. We call it an open convention. It'll be the ultimate in uh, you know political openness. And on that subject, Nicholas, we actually have a caller. Uh, his name is Al in Tampa, Florida. And um, he's an avid political follower of Trump and Cruz. He's looking for an outsider candidate. And he's deeply concerned about Kasich uh, plotting what he calls a delegate theft. He'd rather have a political outsider as president. So on that note, uh, Al, go ahead and uh, tell us why you are you, you basically think Kasich is going to try to make a play if, uh, if there's an open convention to take the nomination from uh, Trump or Cruz. Is that correct, Al? Yes, that's correct. And uh, he stated uh, that he, he was go- um, going to not take the low road but the high road into the presidential office but um i honestly think that the only reason he can stay in is if one he has money and number two where's the money going to come from and then just this morning um boehner backs paul ryan for president and stated if we don't have a nominee who can win on the first ballot i'm for none of the above former House Speaker John Boehner said, they all had a chance to win. None of them won, so I'm for none of the above. I'm for Paul Ryan to be our nominee. So with all these states that have all these delegates, um, I think there's going to be a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, that are going to happen state by state that the people who voted aren't going to understand or won't understand, and I they're already angry, so what's going to happen after that is my question. Um, I think it's a great question. I think also, you know, there's the dynamic of some people actually said, you know, I thought it made it more likely that there would be an open convention that Kasich won, but there's some who are saying if Kasich lost, he would have dropped out of the race in addition to Rubio. It would have then been Trump versus Cruz one-on-one, and it actually would have been harder for Trump to get to 1237 because then, you know, Cruz would be consolidating the non-Trump vote and it would make it harder. I don't know. Nicholas, first of all, if you want to answer Al's question, then what do you think about the, you know, the dynamic of Kasich uh, winning Ohio last night and how it affects the it, I think Al is absolutely right about uh, John Kasich. There is no means that he could possibly get enough delegates the, the legitimate voting way. Uh, he is banking on a broker convention and appearing to uh, the, the money in the Republican Party, that is the big donors who are on the East Coast mostly, uh, to decide that they're going to put their money behind Kasich and uh, run him instead of Trump and just face the consequences. And I was quite right, too. There is this... Uh, how can such a large crowd of angry people who have legitimately gone through the democratic process in order to select a candidate, why should they have their fingers slammed in the door by a group of anonymous people? Who are the GOP establishments? Anybody put any faces in them? Where's this photograph of the, the 25 of them or whoever they are? If those are the people who are going to see off Trump supporters, then I can see the Trump supporters are not going to be very happy. And how they express that... I must say, could be very ugly. 
absolutely. And Al and actually Donald Trump are quite right about it. Though at the same time, uh, Trump is always in a position to try to calm things down if he wants to. But at the moment, he's happy with the threat of uh, violence, I guess, or uh, uh, large protests on the street. Let's leave it at that. But... Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating the way the, thing, the, the race will go forward, because as I say, if, even if it comes down to two, just Cruz and Trump, either way, it's still a profoundly divided party. And how exactly? I mean, it's going to be, for the press anyway, it's going to be, uh, if we, we haven't seen anything yet, the spectacle of uh, a large convention hall in Ohio, uh, filled not with smoking people anymore, but with vaping people, maybe. Uh, <laughs> That's into awesome, <laughs> In order to try to plot exactly how to uh, overthrow the, the more or less legitimately appointed, anointed uh, leader is going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, I must say, in a way, of course, we are living in such an open society now where everything is photographed, where everything is recorded, where everybody watches the TV. People like Al are amazingly well informed. They've got very good judgment on things. In the past, when there were these uh, uh, historic party conventions where uh, things happened behind closed doors and bargains were made and promises made and then unkept and so on, uh, it was so uh, impossible and opaque to see that actually people People, I think, maybe they were all so more deferential, too. If the leadership said, vote for this guy, they went and voted for this guy. But it's not like that anymore. People feel entitled. They, uh, they, they feel uh, empowered by their vote. And if the vote is seen to be overturned, I can see that they're going to be profoundly upset. <laughs> no, And I, you know what? I honestly, despite my—thank you for the call, Al. Despite my feelings about Donald Trump um, and how much I disagree with him, I do think there's a point to be made, you know, although I absolutely strongly disagree with his comments today, I think he is inciting violence and he's continuing to do so. If he was a real leader, he would say, you know, we're going to get to that number and if not, we'll figure something out in a peaceful process because this is America. But he's not that candidate. He's never been that candidate. Um, That said, I I could see why a lot of his supporters would be upset if he had by far the most um, delegates. So, well, it it remains to be seen. He has to win... like I said, about 60% of the remaining delegates. We'll see what happens. Um, another interesting uh, uh, point about last night is Trump, if, if a lot of people, I don't know if they knew this, but he was holding last night was not billed as just like a rally. It was supposed to be a press conference. There was actually press credentials given out, listing that it was going to be a press conference in Florida last night. He's taken questions at all of his other election night um, victories, yet he took no questions from reporters last night. And he also made the comments rallying against the media, the, lie, the quote, lies, deceit, and viciousness, and the quote, disgusting reporters. And he pointed at the cameras. Um, you had political reporter Ben Schreckinger denied entry to Trump's press conference last night, despite having previously been granted credentials by the campaign. And this, uh, not so coincidentally, comes after uh, the latest story, or excuse me, his latest story on Trump's campaign was a report on concerns about manager Corey Lewandowski's temperament and behavior. Now, for those of you who, who need a refresher, Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, had assault charges filed against him on Friday by uh, a former Breitbart reporter named Michelle Fields. Um, Fields says she was grabbed forcefully and pulled away from Trump as she tried to ask him a question after a press conference last Tuesday. And Washington Post reporter Ben Terrace uh, has identified Lewandowski as the man who grabbed Fields. Now, Nicholas, with all that said, how bad do you think reporters would be treated under a Trump administration? And before you answer that, 
Let's remind our audience that Trump has said if he becomes president, he plans to change libel laws in the United States so that he can have an easier time suing news organizations. Absolutely. That was the ominous thing. That was a couple of weeks ago. And when he said it, I thought, my goodness, well, there goes the First Amendment. We're not allowed to say anything anymore in case Trump, who's notorious, of course, for suing. So the White House is going to start suing under Trump? That would be a fascinating thing. The the press has played, actually, as always, a very large part in this election because they reflect uh, people's interests. Uh, That's what we're all chasing after. We're chasing after numbers. Now, we're we're not... uh, ratings whores, but uh, at the same time, we get paid if we get a lot of people taking an interest in the stuff that we present to them. And that's what you want. You want, uh, you want viewers, you want listeners, you want readers. Uh, and so it's entirely legitimate for uh, the press to have uh, followed Trump. But it, it's true that he, he um, I know that we're only just above lawyers in the sort of seven circles of hell for conservative yeah. supporters, but uh, the, the fact is that he... Uh, in uh, attacking the press at every opportunity, um, I must say, has, will set up uh, a circumstance that w- he doesn't even have to be present. You wait till he's a candidate if actually the, the press are genuinely hostile to him. They've just been skeptical and treated him as a bit of a clown. But as he's become more and more serious, I think that they will become uh, rather sharper about it. So he's sort of inviting his own demise in that sense. If you really want a hostile press, and look what happens if you do have one. Remember Richard Nixon and the way that he was... Uh, hounded from office, really, by, by a, a press that was just determined to do his, his, their job and get rid of him whatever, uh, in whatever way they could. And, Nicholas, uh, on that point, I mean, it's not Trump. Trump's not like a Hillary Clinton where all of his skeletons are out of his closet. I mean, he hasn't run for office before. He hasn't released his tax returns yet. He's got a lawsuit against Trump University. Um, I mean, there could be a number of things that if the press does some digging, you know, they could find out. To your point about you know, whether or not we're media whores. I think I'd like to think that we're not, but I will tell you one guy who I think is, is Les uh, Moonves uh, of CBS. I don't know if you heard these comments from him uh, a couple of weeks ago, but um, he was at, uh, I think, a shareholders meeting, um, and he said... uh, it may not be regarding the, the bonanza with with Trump uh, coverage. He said it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Um, and he said, bring it on, Trump. And, you know, if you look at the coverage, uh, getting into the coverage about Trump, you know, people may feel like they're seeing a lot more of him. Well, they are. Um, just to give people an example, this this kind of was astounding to me. I, I had suspected it, but I didn't know it was this bad. Uh, on ABC World News Tonight, Donald Trump received more than 240 times the coverage of fellow presidential candidate Bernie Sanders for the entire year of 2015. Let that sink in for just a minute. You got a major network's evening newscast, over 240 times the coverage for one contending candidate over another. I mean, as Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! put it, Trump doesn't even have to go out on the road. He's piped into everyone's home. I mean, what do you think of this blanket coverage, Nicholas? I know people are interested in reading about it, but 240 times the coverage? It's not like Bernie Sanders is some boring dude. No, but uh, Bernie Sanders isn't a skilled uh, manipulator of the media, a television personality in his own right, uh, and someone who know, you know who learned the, the art of self-publicity in the cradle, which is what Donald Trump did. And his ability, and that's why he didn't answer any questions last night, he didn't need to. He had his story. We had our story. We didn't need a little twist. In fact, it would have distracted from his victory uh, if last night uh, he'd said something which would have made a story. So best, I think, for him, he, what he needs is... Uh, uh, 
when he needs to, he dominates the news cycle. Look at the way that he brings out uh, various tricks, says things that he knows are guaranteed to saturate the, uh, the news coverage for the following 24 hours. He's a total master at it, and uh, we're all sort of suckers for it, but we're all suckers for it because people like to know. The, the, right at the moment, it's not just on the air, it's in streets, it's in bars, it's in homes. Everybody's saying, did you hear what Donald Trump said now? And that is just a natural gossipy impulse, which is at the basis, really, of what news, the definition of news is what people want to know about. And they genuinely want to know the latest outrage from Trump. Now, uh, he, uh, it's true that uh, he, he didn't take questions last night. He's not going into the next debate, I understand. Yeah, you, actually, Nicholas, we have breaking news regarding that. Uh, Fox News has canceled the GOP debate after Donald Trump pulled out. So he's now uh, uh, actually scheduling the party's debates or descheduling them, whatever words you want to use. I don't remember this happening before where a candidate just, uh, you know, I think I've heard them the threaten to pull out. Maybe they didn't schedule it, but this is the second time he's done it. And now the whole debate's actually being canceled. Do you remember a, a debate being canceled like this before? Never. It would have been impossible. Absolutely I mean, impossible. He's making his own rules. There's no doubt that he's, we're in a different world where, uh, yes, one person can dictate the terms for everybody else. And what's more, that the press falls in with it. I mean, you know, if uh, it wouldn't be any skid off Fox's news's nose to stand up for a while and actually allow a debate between Cruz and Kasich uh, and uh, let, uh, let the, you know, the dice fall where they may. Uh, though I suppose even in that case, you see, Trump will time it so that he has live coverage which would trump any debate held by Fox News. The APAC live television stream would be one of his conditions of appearing there. Uh, it, it, I must say, it's, it, he's hard to wrestle with, isn't he? When you're, what you're trying to do as a journalist, anyway, is to try to give a, you know, an, a, an honest, open, above-board account of events, uh, because he is such a, a great manipulator of events. The, I, so, in brief, what I would say is I don't blame the press for following his every move, and I can see that it looks much out of kilter, but my goodness, he, he is a, a, a star uh, in, in these, and, and a master of uh, ceremonies, and, uh, and we just have to keep following his circus as it r rambles down the road. But what I would say is that very early on, at the very first Fox debate, if you remember, uh, he... Uh, had a fight with Megyn Kelly, and he accused Fox itself, but you know, the great conservative champion, of uh, fielding him gotcha questions. And that meant ever since, first of all, Fox recoiled, but then everybody else didn't hold him to account. Uh, he just has been talking garbage, going round and round in circles, not answering questions now for months, and nobody's ever taken him to task. It's, even, even recently, on the Sunday morning shows last Sunday and the Sunday before, they did not ask him the difficult questions about violence, or he was able to slither out of it with no comment. And uh, so I think that actually the, 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 the press, they might wake up to it a bit late when they realize that their own liberties are now being threatened by Mr. Trump, uh, and their own physical safety uh, and access to him are all now being denied by Mr. Trump. So I would guess that uh, finally they might start asking him some uh, Questions. There are other places, you know, uh, in Britain, for instance, where they're not very deferential to their politicians, where the, the guy asked the Chancellor's Checker, the guy who runs the economy, uh, the same question, I think, 28 times. Wow. And, and, until the fact that he didn't answer the question became uh, news in itself. So that's what you've got to do. Why has why nobody had a go at uh, Trump?
<laughs> well, you know, it's a very good question, Nichols. We're going to take a break on that note. I think you do see, you know, he is a master of controlling the media. I think some of the media that would be asking him some of those questions, um, you know, have been barred from some of his events. Uh, let's see. I, I had a list here, and, I, of course, I can't find it right now. Um, but there's been a number of uh, organizations that have been barred from his events, uh, including uh, Politico as of late. Um, you've got, you know, a bunch of other uh, organizations, which I can mention after the break. But one thing I wanted to mention on that media coverage point, you know, you've got barriers created by voter ID laws and the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act. They were undoubtedly fact in several states, but you've got GOP turnout way up while Democratic turnout is way down. And as John Nichols of The Nation writes in his article, How We Got Trumped by the Media, why isn't a contest that features an insurgent candidate mounting a vigorous populist challenge to a former Secretary of State with strong support from party leaders and key constituencies attracting more votes than a Republican contest where the, ha- uh, the candidates argue about the size of their hands? Well, anyone who understands how the modern media shaped the narrative as opposed to simply reporting on it knows the answer. As of late February, the wrangling between Trump and his GOP rivals was given twice as much time on network TV as the, the Clinton-Sanders contest. And I think Nicholas explained why that's happening and gave a very good answer. And one more uh, passage from this Nichols piece. He said, The past 20 years have seen radical changes in the American media, the pandemic downsizing of newsrooms, sweeping layoffs of journalists, and a desperation for clicks and ratings that guarantees that civic and Democratic values will always be trumped by commercial and entertainment demands. CBS chief Les Moonves, who we mentioned, says of the ratings and revenue bonanza associated with the Trump moment, quote, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Nichols writes, Moonves is right. Media coverage that's all about Trump and misses the real story of 2016 is terrible for America. We'll be back with uh, Nicholas Wapshot in uh, just a couple minutes. This is Mark Romaldi in for Leslie Marshall. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Mark Ramali with Nicholas Wapshot. Nicholas, in the uh, final couple minutes uh, we have here, I was watching, uh, as I mentioned, the CNN coverage last night, and there was a, a senior analyst named Ron Brownstein, who I believe works for The Atlantic as well. He noted that uh, Trump could have some problems in the general election, even though he's this you know master media uh, manipulator, um, because he's he's got an unfavorable rating at about 70% with groups like college-educated women, minorities and millennials so uh brownstein pointed out a really strong point which is if trump were to become president with those unfavorable ratings with those people he'd likely have to win more white working class voters than ronald reagan did in his 1984 landslide win so just wondering what you thought about that point yeah well (laughs) ron brownstein's absolutely right of course the uh the thing about um, Ronald Reagan and why he was able to charm the birds off the trees was that actually he was a very uh, engaging, warm-hearted human being. And what is evident from looking at Donald Trump is that uh, he isn't. And Mrs. Clinton must think, when she looked at her own un, uh, unpopular ratings, uh, she must look at Donald's with some happiness because they're about 70% and growing. Uh, we're talking here, by the way, if you're talking about whether he's electable, he has managed to attract about a third of traditional 
Republican primary voters. That's not really enough. Uh, he's rather like Bernie. He has uh, restricted himself to angry white uh, northerners, mainly. <laughs> uh, no, he's, he's got some in the south, but they're, they're sorry, I mean, they're not, they're just, they're a similar sort of blue-collar white crowd, and he can't really break out of that, and he's certainly not going to make any distance on, uh, in the, with the African-Americans, with the Hispanics, with women, and all the other groups, the disabled, every other group that he's managed to offend in, in the short time that he's been running. But I'll tell you a much more important thing, really, in terms of electability. You've got it about costs money to run an election, uh, not just for advertising, which, uh, spending on which uh, this season doesn't seem to have worked very well, but it takes about a billion dollars. Trump has not spent very much at all. In as much as he has spent money, he's lent the money to his own campaign on the assumption that when he becomes the nominee of the Republican Party, the RNC and the establishment paymasters are going to step up and provide all of the cash. It ain't going to happen. Nicholas, great point. Sorry, we've got to run. That's been Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of Newsweek and an author. Check him out at nwapshot on Twitter. This is Mark Romaldi. Leslie will be right back after this break.